Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! The second floor of the AC building at Bethel University. It's time for election shock therapy. Well, this should be good because there's not much has happened, so we can make this wrap it up in about yeah, five minutes. Yeah, this boring. is mostly just a check-in, see how you guys are doing, how you spent your spring Trump break. Trump has just been a really Nothing's even president. In American there's politics. Really interesting going on. <laughs> no drama. So where to begin? I, that's what Andy said. <laughs> guys, we need a podcast, and I don't know where to start. I know, right? Oh, man. Um, let's see. Uh, since the last time we were on, all of us, Andy and I went on spring break. Sam continued his sabbatical. You went to the Magic Kingdom. I did. Yeah. Was it truly uh, the place on a Earth. world of, a you world know, of imagination? I want to be snarky, but like they do a really good job. Like Yay. it's great. It was <laughs> super fun. Classic American kid. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's all and like high level like efficiency. Nice. Like there because we we did <laughs> we did three days in Disney parks and we went wow. one day to Universal to go to Harry Potter World and like mm-hmm. the Universal folks don't have their act together like the Disney people. Like it's. Disney like knows how to move people around so you don't feel like you're crowded even though there's thousands of people there. Mm-hmm. And uh Universal doesn't do that. So All right. Are they they're not, they're not a sponsor, are they? Right. Disney Universal? No, Universal. Universal is not one of our sponsors. Not yet, but um we are in talks. <laughs> okay. our, our list of zero sponsors. <laughs> Andy, did you go anywhere for spring break? Um, I went to Dubuque, Iowa, which is which is almost like Disneyland, Disneyland, but does also start with a D. Um, mm-hmm. So we went down there to visit family, and we had a nice time with them. So what's um, the defining feature? If, if, if what's the visitor's guide to Dubuque? If you were going to go to Dubuque, what's something that you should check out? Oh man, I'm really poorly positioned to answer that because I just went down to see family, and even though I okay. spent a year of my life there, so you should I go, never you had should, a car. You should go there. hang with Andy's so, family if you go to Dubuque. Yeah, apparently. I mean, they they are right by the Mississippi, and there are some nice looking bluffs around there. Oh, so nice. like, you okay. know, you can do that. So a little, little nature walk. Um, nice. Yep, yep. So you can do that, that okay. kind of thing. But did, did you enjoy the southern weather by going south? Yeah, Dubuque? it was super toasty. It was just wandering around shorts and t shirt. All right. So, I saw was, it. I it was still fairly cool, but it was nice. It was nice. Cool. I saw a chart detailing Minnesota winters, and it's kind of like if you remember from Lord of the Rings, when the hobbits are asking the humans, like, <laughs> what about second breakfast? What about luncheon and tea and afternoon yeah. tea? And uh, in, in Minnesota, we have we have winter, then fall, spring, then second winter, yes. <laughs> and then we have mud season, and then we have third winter, and yes. right now we're in third winter. It yep. is, um, it's almost April, and we're supposed to get five to nine inches of snow tomorrow. Oh, really? I, yes. I missed that. We'll see list. if that happens or not. You know, there's this, you know, the apocalypse uh, forecasting. But, now, yeah. I realize this is this is super not evergreen, um, but, but <laughs> when are we supposed to get these five to nine inches, like tomorrow night or uh, tomorrow? Friday evening into Saturday morning. Oh, okay. That's fine. That's I just fine. don't want to get up and shovel tomorrow. Yeah, you're no, good. No, okay. You're good. No, no. Cool. <laughs> you're yeah, that, you're right. You don't have you know, to. In so many to. ways, that's not evergreen. <laughs> uh, but what we're about to talk about isn't evergreen either because, no, you know what? No. It, seems like, it seems like people aren't lasting long in the Trump administration. Yeah. I don't even I don't even have prepared a full laundry list of everyone who's departed, but since the last time we've podcast, um, Hope Hicks, Hope Hicks the White House gone. Communications Director, yeah. has stepped down. Uh, by the way, it's looking increasingly like her position is going to be filled by Andy Scaramucci. 
No, <laughs> the mooch is not coming back. Come on, you, well, one, America loves a comeback story. We love the comeback story. One season of the mooch is enough. Season of the mooch is enough. It's um, a cameo. It's not it was, a season. It was a season. It was the, a um, Kellyanne Conway is likely to be oh, the new White House communications director. Uh, in addition, Gary Cohn, the president's uh, chief economic advisor, is also stepping has also stepped down. Gone, yeah. And the r- rationale for that was he opposed Trump's decision to place tariffs on uh, mm-hmm. steel and aluminum. Gary Cohn is a free trade enthusiast uh, and uh, objected to sort of national protectionist right. policies like that. Uh, he's been replaced by Larry Kudlow, uh, who is mostly a TV economic an- analyst slash pundit, but mm-hmm. Who's also a free trade, uh, free trade guy, but whom he whom said he could learn to live with Trump's tariffs. <laughs> um, I, I think you'll have with to Trump's learn to new tariffs. Trump's announced he's going to hit uh, China with yeah. about fifty billion dollars in economic tariffs yeah. for for uh, um, patent violations. Um, in addition, uh, we have finally, finally had Brexit. Yep. Right. Uh, Rex Tillerson, this, um, the much maligned Secretary of State, maligned from the left and apparently the right as well, um, <laughs> has uh, exited the building. He's ex- he's been fired by tweet, which is a first in American history, as far as I can mm-hmm. tell. And uh, Trump has announced not only that, that Rex will be leaving, but also that he will be replaced by Mike Pompeo. Mm-hmm. Mike Pompeo is the currently the uh, director of the CIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Pompeo becomes Secretary of State, Trump will uh, um, elevate Gina Haspel to mm-hmm. become the new CIA director. Haspel herself is a somewhat controversial uh, uh, person. She d- did not need confirmation from the Senate in her current role as a, as a, as a deputy right. director of the CIA. That does not require Senate confirmation. She will need Senate confirmation to be director of the CIA. And that's important because... It appears that she was directly involved in some uh, CIA black sites. These are sites outside the United States' borders where um, suspected terrorists or foreign operatives are held Mm -hmm. in detention and and also interrogated, including Mm -hmm. things that have been defined as torture, like waterboarding. And Apparently, she supervised waterboarding. Yep. So, and um, <laughs> there's more. But, but wait, there's more. <laughs> um, who am I missing? There's some. Uh, we've had some other ki- other departures as well. Um, uh, this is the main ones. I mean, there's rumors, of course, about. Well, of course, he fired um, McCabe, yes, um, the FBI um, associate director, who had kind of stepped aside from that position, but was still somehow on their payroll. I'm not really quite sure on the details there, but. Yep. Um, so Andy McCabe, uh, notably in, in in classic sort of like lethal weapon fashion, uh, was was fired two days before having <laughs> been able to retire and collect his pension. Yeah. So was uh, he preparing his boat named Live Forever like right before? I I presume okay. that's exactly yes. the case. Yeah. yeah. So and it makes me wonder like, is there some like job he like, could he come back and do like custodial services for the FBI for two days just to get the official at bats? Just, just just to get the at bats. Well, there's yeah. been there's been um. Offers. I mean, like, no one's actually, like, signed him on the dotted line or anything, but some Democratic congressmen have talked about bringing him on to their payrolls because that would, again, I guess, make him eligible for his pension. Because the issue is, like, he's two days short of, like, his pension, basically. Right. And so, like, they've, they've, they've talked about it, but I haven't seen anyone actually do it yet. Right. So we'll see. So he may yet, you know, he may yet find his happily ever after, so to speak. But, um, yeah. Well, his happily ever after is going to involve, um, I presume, some kind of tell-all book about the Trump administration. Uh, think, like yes. Jim Jim Comey, Andy McCabe yeah. took notes with all of his meetings with the president, and those notes are now in the hands of one, yes, Robert Mueller, yes. who is continuing his investigation. Those are fake memos, Chris. The president has told us those are fake memos. Well, 
Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. I think, I mean, one of the things I want to highlight in all that you've just been saying here is just to remind our listeners, I mean, this is really odd, right? <laughs> um, this level of turnover. And I think it's yes. important in the Trump administration era to kind of keep reminding ourselves of that. This is unusual. This is not how things usually work. Like, I'm... I was sitting here as Chris was talking, trying to remember the last time a secretary of state has actually been fired. I can't really remember. Um, there was an awkward relationship between Al Haig back in 82 and Reagan, but I think he resigned. Um, Bill Rogers was kind of sort of pushed out for Henry Didn't Kissinger. Nixon fire his secretary of state? Maybe he fired Bill Rogers yeah. to replace him with Kissinger. So that yeah. might be the last time we had a firing. I think that's the case. It's unusual. And Bill Rogers had been in the job for four and a half years, right? So yeah. he wasn't exactly... You know, it was, was not 14 months. So it's worth noting um, none of us were alive when this happened is how right, far back we need right, to go. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's really unusual for this level of turnover. I mean, um, Kellyanne Conway, if she gets that job, will be, I think, the fifth or sixth White House communications director if we give – I think it depends on how we count um, – yeah, right? No, the the guy who was the press secretary. Why am I trying to blank in his name? Um, that guy back in the day. It's, it's getting hard to remember. The one who preceded Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Um, he he served twice as communications director, once as interim, because after they pushed somebody else out, I forget. I can't keep track of all the names. There's been too many names. But anyways, like this is like I think, I think about the sixth communications director. Um, so this is a really high level of turnover. It's mm-hmm. the kind of thing you might sometimes see. I mean, never quite the, even at this level, but in the eighth year of an administration, you right. never see this in the first two years. I mean, the first four years is usually relatively stable. Mm-hmm. Um, you get one or two people who don't work out, um, but for the most part, your team stays intact. Um, and, you know, that's not the case. And, and it looks like we're not done. I mean, there's rumors about John Kelly being pushed out, who's the chief of staff. There's rumors that H.R. McMaster, who's the national security advisor, the second one in that post. Right. Um, Kelly's also the second chief of staff. That They're both kind of on the ropes. Uh, there's even been rumblings about Mattis, although there's I hear less on that front. So, right. um, you know, there's this could not. I mean, there, there could be a lot more coming in the relatively near future. And again, this is all really odd. Can I throw some a little bit of speculation on there? Uh, one thing to pay one thing to keep in mind with all these uh, positions is how much we should pay attention to this from the perspective of the president mm-hmm. versus the perspective of the White House. So, mm-hmm. from the perspective of the White House, that is to say, if we if we just ignore who Donald Trump is and just say this is a generic Republican president with a generic Republican staff, right. there is going to be some level of turnover. Of course. This is a aberrantly high level of turnover yeah. relative to any comparison presidency in the modern can, era. Can you right. give an ex- like like can you give an example of like how aberrant it is? Approximately three times as much. Okay. Okay. Yeah. In this at, 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 least. at, at this, this point. point. Okay. Yes. Yeah, at least. I mean, I, I might even be higher than that, honestly. Yeah. But he, um, he, he, there has been more turnover in this 14 month span than most people experienced through the first three years of their presidency. Okay. Oh yeah, easily. I mean, like um, you, you just think about some of the key positions we're talking about. Like again, Secretary of State. The last I'm trying to think, go, going back to the last three presidents. So um, Clinton, Bush, and. Um, Obama, their Secretary of State's all served four-year terms. I mean, they, they were they would they would replace them after they got reelected, and yep. then each person served a full four years, right? And so, what Andy's saying is worth noting: uh, there are kind of turnover seasons, yeah. And that season is usually after the, the president's reelection, yeah. And or sometimes, sometimes the if the president's doing poorly after the midterms, yeah. where a member of a member of the administration would say. I don't think this person's going to run for re-election or going to win re-election. I'm going to get out now because yeah. I'm still a valuable yeah. commodity to lobbyists, to mm. uh, other kinds of entities before that presidency. So yeah. uh, let me say that. So that's the White House perspective. The, the other thing I would add to the White House perspective is that compared to someone like H.R. McMaster, 
national yes. security advisor who daily interfaces with the president or the White House communications yeah. director who daily interfaces with the president. Jim Mattis uh, is comparatively insulated from the president. Yes, he sees the president on a daily sure. basis, but most of his work is facing towards the Defense Department. Right. And in that way, he's really out of the president's line of sight. Um, and I, I, I mean, I mean it's in a real way. And, and yeah. so I think that uh, there's less talk about him mm-hmm. leaving because he's less part of the White House uh, palace intrigue. Right. The other, but that leads to the second point, which is we also could view this as a function mm-hmm. of Donald Trump. And I want to be careful here because this is how the media is often treating this. Like, well, this is Trump's doing. And Trump yeah. is a very different person as president. Right. And he has brought different kinds of people in. The narrative that I see emerging in, in the in the media is that Trump is leading the White House like he leads his reality show, that mm-hmm. there needs to be drama, there needs to be turmoil, that he likes conflict mm-hmm. and, and firing people and bringing new people in and getting a turn of ideas, a churn of ideas, excuse me, is part of his process. <laughs> Do you guys buy that? Hmm. Is this a, is this an artifact of who Trump is? Is he is he P.T. Barnuming the White House? I mean, I do think he gets bored very easily, so that might be part of it. Changing them out, I think he, I think he also deals with conflict very poorly in the sense that he does not like to have people disagreeing with him, and so disagreeing with him is kind of a, a bit of a, a death knell for your sort of you know tenure in that position. So, for example, I mean, the economic advisor Cohen, who just stepped aside, you know, was largely stepping aside because he disagreed with the president on tariffs, and that was not okay. Um, Rex Tillerson seems to have gotten fired, not because he wasn't a very good Secretary of State. And actually, Although, in he, fact, wasn't. he wasn't a very good Secretary He wasn't. Secretary. He wasn't running the State Department all that well. He was not really experienced for it. And he, you know, he, I don't think he did a good job administering the State Department. So he, I'm not saying he didn't deserve to be fired. I don't think the reason he got fired, though, was good, which is that I think he got fired because he was disagreeing with the president too much on things like North Korea and Iran. Um, and so, you know, which some very public. Uh, contradictions yeah. with the president, Secretary yeah. of State. Yeah. So, and and also because he had a very low view of the president. I mean, he, by very good accounts, called the president a moron, a right? bleeping moron. Uh, yep. Yeah, a bleeping moron. <laughs> um, so, you know, so I think those are kind of unfortunate reasons why he may have gotten fired. And so, I, I guess I look at the turnover and see this is a president who doesn't like conflict. Uh, I mean, who doesn't like to have people disagreeing with him? Um, and if you do, you're gone. Also, if you're seen as not defending the president in the right way. I mean, was Hope Hicks pushed out because she didn't give a full-throated enough defense of Trump, right? And, and we're not really sure on the details there, but that's one that's one narrative for that. So I guess I look at it more as that and less as sort of Trump sort of making the White House into a TV show, but I can see where they're coming from. I mean, uh, my, my question, and this is the, really speaking as somebody who, like, I can hear some of these positions and, like, I think I know what, Kind of know what the Secretary of State does. That's good, <laughs> you know, but 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 like yeah. but I oldest, say, oldest position in the U.S. government. I say kind mm-hmm. of because like on a day to day basis, I like I couldn't walk you through the Secretary of State's day. Like I, I mean, mm-hmm. I know what I know what their portfolio roughly is. What they're mm-hmm. are these the kind of jobs? Thinking about the idea of stability, like when you when you roll these jobs over, and and I, I realize I'm speaking relatively, but what what are relatively the easier jobs to walk in and be ready day one, and what are the ones where <laughs> what are the ones where it's like, okay, you're Secretary of State, how long does it take to from the moment you have that job to all to to actually be ready and and mm-hmm. and, and maybe mm-hmm. be good at it, or are these just all political positions where if you're a person in politics, your kind your your feet are kind of in those waters? I mean, like I, I, I see, so so. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which job has the biggest learning curve? Right, because I'm presuming mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. talked about the the previous Secretary of State's, you know, basically being there for the full term. I'm mm-hmm. guessing they were better at the job year two than they were in the first three weeks in terms of mm-hmm. understanding yes. the ins and outs right. of it. Yes. Right. Um, Certain kinds of things prepare one to be in other mm-hmm. positions, too. Um, I disagree with Mike Pompeo in a number of policy positions, but director of the CIA is quite good preparation to be Secretary okay. of State. He's better prepared than Tillerson, for yes. sure, even though I agree uh, In fact, I expect a certain... That this, uh, according to sources, not my sources, news sources, uh, morale at the State Department has been abysmal since Tillerson has come in. Yeah. I expect a slight boost to morale with Pompeo, not because the State Department's thrilled to have Pompeo be Secretary of State, but just because almost anything was better than what they were getting before, yeah. mm-hmm. which, which is literally death by starvation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think... Um, was that Tillerson's policy or was that... Trump's policy played out. It was a combination. I think Tillerson came in really having a a business mindset. He was, of course, formerly uh, CEO of Mm -hmm. of, uh, Exxon Exxon, and uh, really wanted to streamline the State Department. And Mm -hmm. his his way of doing that streamlining was to uh, simply cut budgets dramatically and then let the State Department sort of fight it out amongst itself. And Mm -hmm. um, that induced a a, a real morale issue for the the State Department. And, And we should say for our listeners, too, um, not all government bureaucracies are created equally. The mm-hmm. Defense Department is the largest company in the United States, mm-hmm. um, if you want to look at it that way, uh, in terms of employees and budget size. Uh, the Defense, the State Department, by in contrast, is a very small organization. That said, it is a very complex organization because the majority mm-hmm. of your employees are spread around the world um, in various right. uh, embassies and various postings, and you're trying to marshal all those resources, uh, control message, uh, send message <laughs> out in, in a variety mm-hmm. of ways, as well as be the interface between the president and the, and the department that you're ostensibly governing. And we tend to have had two kinds of state depart- sorry, I mean, secretaries of state. Uh, in modern history. You have secretaries of state who are essentially aligned with the president and carry the president's message to the State Department. Mm-hmm. And Rex Tillerson was certainly that guy. Um, and Condoleezza Rice mm-hmm. was that person, too. Or you have secretaries of state who are essentially leaders of the State Department who carry the State Department's message to the president. Mm-hmm. And in contrast, I would say that was Colin Powell mm-hmm. and Madeleine Albright. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a very di- there's a sort of a different approach to that to that position in that way. To kind of circle back and answer, your, I'll take a stab at answering your question though, which is I don't think Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis's position um, are good positions to walk in and learn on the job. Those are positions with incredibly high learning curves, mm-hmm. esoteric departmental cultures, uh, complicated portfolios. If there's a job you could learn on the fly, I think it's National Security Advisor. And let me, the, the reason for that is um, the staff is not huge. It's, it's an important staff, and it's a, it's a well-resourced mm-hmm. staff. But you're dealing with, a, with, you're dealing with the hundreds, not the thousands. Mm-hmm. And you serve one client. Your goal is to, his goal is to advise the president. And so right. your, 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 uh, your loyalties are very clear. And there's lots of avenues that could train one to be a good national security mm-hmm. advisor. Of course, being uh, a member of the military um, would be great preparation. But also you could imagine someone coming from CIA or coming from state or coming from the, uh, the policy world who could also, I think, acquit themselves relatively well, especially if they have a history of receiving the intelligence briefings. You know, so if they're sort of well-steeped well in uh, American uh, 
national security intelligence briefings that you could probably walk in and mm-hmm. um, there's it's not quite so steep of a learning curve as some of those major bureaucracies. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Andy? No, I, I agree. I mean, I think that um, those are state and defense are really hard ones, and that's what made Mattis a pretty good choice for defense because he at least had some real familiarity with that department because of his right. background in the military. So um, that worked, and that's why I mean, you know, when Trump was proposing his list, I mean, Tillerson was just. You, know, you kind of rolled your eyes at that choice, like, oh man, he, this guy does not have the background, right? I mean, you can't just go from being CEO of a you know a multinational corporation to thinking like, oh, I can run the very kind of weird State Department. It's just such a different um, environment. So you really need somebody who has some real familiarity. I mean, and our recent secretaries of state before him have had, and I think again, I, I have my disagreements with Mike Pompeo, but I think he has at least more. Um, mm-hmm. And CIA is going to be a, a decent, you know, one year training um, to prep him for the State Department. So. You know, in that sense, this is a good move. Um, the concern is that Pompeo is probably too much of a presidential loyalist. Um, oh, absolutely. So I think that's the you know that would be my concern with that. But yeah, uh, po- for those listening, Pompeo formerly was a member of Congress. He was elected in the big Tea Party wave of 2010, mm-hmm. um, and was an ardent early vocal supporter of of Donald Trump's candidacy. Yeah, and that's what elevated him to this position. Yeah, exactly. So the I mean, the other thing we should probably talk about a little bit is just the so you think about all this instability, and we think about the ongoing Mueller investigation. Of course, that's another person who's been, you know, rumored to be on <laughs> in danger of being fired. Of course, the president can't fire Mueller directly. Yeah, he can, can ask. Can, can, can I ask you the pause button? Uh, with all these threats of the firing of yeah. uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller, right. what would his uh, what would be the process for firing him? Well, basically, the Justice Department has to fire him, mm-hmm. and so the president could ask the and Justice not Department Jeff Sessions, to do that. because not Jeff Sessions, Sessions, who is the who is the Attorney General that heads the himself. Justice Department, has recused himself from this case, so he no longer has yeah. the capacity to do that firing. Right. So it would have to be the deputy, who is of course the one who hired. And the deputy's name um, is Rod Rosenstein. That's right, Rod Rosenstein, and he's the one who hired Mueller Miller in the first place. So it's unlikely he would do that, but. Um, so you could, I mean, you know, the, the precedent we have for this, obviously, is 1973 uh, with Richard Nixon when he wanted um, Special Counsel Cox fired, who was investigating um, the, Nixon camp, the Nixon presidency. Um, and the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General both refused and resigned, right? Mm-hmm. And finally, the, was it the, who's the third guy I'm trying to The Solicitor blank. General. Solicitor General, right. The Solicitor General, who was Robert Bork, actually later a failed um, Supreme Court nominee, um, did in fact fire Cox, and it was referred to as the as Friday Night Massacre. Or, I'm trying to remember. It was a Saturday. Saturday, 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 Night Saturday Night Massacre, right? So, um, so all of a sudden you get back after the weekend, and the whole um, Justice Department's been kind of turned over. So, mm-hmm. um, and the special counsel's gone. So that's what the president could do: is he could ask somebody in the Justice Department to fire him. Um, you know, Sessions couldn't. Rosenstein probably wouldn't. He probably have to go down the chain. If he got rid of Sessions and brought in somebody else, then the that person the could. that is a possibility. Right. And there has right. been some limited speculation that if Rosenstein yeah. is is truculent in this matter, that what what Trump would do is simply fire Sessions, who apparently he also yeah. um, has mean tweeted quite a bit. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> and that um, and then replace them with someone whose whose only job was to fire Robert Mueller. Yeah. Yeah. So he could I mean, he could do that. I think the the danger he faces, of course, is that, you know, 
Mueller is very respected uh, across party lines, even though that's probably less than somewhat with this investigation just because of the nature of that position. But some Republicans have agitated and said, look, this is not something you should do. You can't fire the independent counsel. You need to let them finish this investigation. And, you know, this investigation is about American national security. I mean, it's about seeing what the Russians are um, are up to and in you know, well, and, and elections, and not just collusion. And, right? and it's so, already – I don't know if this is the right. I mean, it's already successful in that yeah. there's indictments yeah. and confessions. So right. It's like there's something there. Yeah. 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 So if, if it's in fact a witch hunt, they are in fact finding witches. Right. Um, right. <laughs> if we're going to use that analogy. That's right. That's right. Turns out there is witchcraft going on. Right. Yeah. Um, and if Vladimir Putin is the the wizard in chief, apparently or something. Warlock. Right? So, let's let's, uh, let's Warlock. be correct here, please. Warlock is actually that's a good term for Vladimir Putin. Um, so yeah. So that, I think this is interesting. I think one of the questions here too is just um, you know how how much the Congress will be willing to check the president. I mean, they, there are some Republicans who said this is not okay if you fire Mueller, don't do it. They're sort of sending shots across the bow. But would they, in fact, actually pull out their guns and be prepared to do battle if the president does fire him? And I think that's the, the open question. And here it's just it's interesting to highlight, I think, the the relationship between president and Congress here, which is, I mean, designed to check each other, but at the same time, there's a fair bit of separation, right, between the the two, right? So the, in one sense, the Congress has been very reluctant to pass anything the president wants. I mean, they've only passed that tax bill, really, and they affirmed his, you know, some of his um, choices for positions. But um, the president can act independently of them. He can fire Mueller. He can do a lot of things. And the question then is, do they want to, do the Republicans who control Congress want to bring down their own president? I think that's the, the interesting question. I was thinking about this before we came in here, and, you know, the three... So three recent international changes in power that are not changes in power so much as but um, uh, developments within key countries in the world Mm -hmm. um, seem kind of instructive, right? So one is, I mean, Vladimir Putin won re-election in Russia, right? Shocker! Yeah, huge upset. Right, huge upset, right? He probably cheated. He barred the main candidate from, uh, opposition candidate from running against him, so he won with 76% of the vote, you know, and Trump's congratulated him, so that's that. Um, Can can, can we sit pause there for a second? Yeah. I I don't want to dwell a long time on this and and say, I want to acknowledge you have to go to a meeting, don't you? I do. <laughs> Even though he's on sabbatical. He's on sabbatical. He has to go to still a has meetings. Because it's Sam. <laughs> um, but uh, Vladimir Putin certainly set up the system to allow him to easily win re-election. Oh, yeah. But the process looks fairly straightforward. I mean, when we say Vladimir Putin cheated, we don't mean that he stuffed the ballot box with his own name. Well, there's some even speculation about that, too. But, yes, he probably didn't need to do that. He so didn't I don't know why he would have Because he that. was running against uh, seven literally almost nameless candidates. Yeah, or um, just a completely unelectable. And one's a perpetual candidate, but... The, the, um, but, the person yeah. who was his likeliest challenger, not even a favorite, but his likeliest no, no. challenger, Alexei Navalny, was imprisoned to prevent him from running against Vladimir Putin. Good trick. And Putin has, over time, changed the structure of yeah. the Russian electoral process in a way that clearly gives him enormous advantages. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, which makes it all the more striking that he didn't, uh, um, uh, that he continues to cheat in more blatant kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. So he probably would have won had he not done these things. Oh, Putin yeah. remains quite popular yeah. in Russia. Yeah, and so, there's something like, and I don't want to sort of go pursue a rabbit and down the, of Russian politics, but I think there are reasons why he is not least of which is if you remember the '90s, which was a terribly, terribly inst- unstable time. You know, people are grateful that Putin at least provides stability, right? But so Putin's one example, right? I mean, and he, you know, he has a relationship with his 
his version of the Congress, right, where whatever he wants, he gets, right? Um, so that's the one extreme. The other extreme, I think, is the Italian example. They just had elections. They have an incredibly fractured parliament, which is not unusual for Italy. This is probably worse than even usual. And um, in this case, I mean, I think with the Italians, you have a situation where the, the executive has almost no power, right, other than what the parliament grants it, and that government could get overturned at any moment. So it might take them months to figure out how to put together a government, and then that government might survive weeks or months, right? I mean, um, so it's really, really fractured. Um, Why and is then, that? Uh, because they have a system that allows a lot of parties to get elected, and those parties right now don't agree very much. I mean, they, they're getting extremist parties that are winning who don't really want to be in the government, and so it's increasingly hard to find a coalition that works. Basically. Has that been... Is that been since the financial downturn in two thousand eight, two thousand nine? Yeah, I mean this is this is a general trend, right? I mean we've got you know we've got more extremist candidates coming up here, right? With you know you think about Trump's rhetoric, you think about Bernie Sanders' rhetoric, right? Um, they're not people who you would normally expect to be sort of the the candidates of the major parties. And in fact, Sanders got close and Trump got it, right? Um, and this has been true. I mean, like it's true in. You know, France, where the extreme right got a candidate into the final round. Marine Le Pen. Um, yep. In, you know, in Britain, you've had rumblings of this. And the other case I wanted to talk about, which is Germany, right? I mean, sure. they finally formed a government after about four months of trying. Um, and one of the reasons they had trouble is they have a far left and a far right party, both of whom really don't want to be in government and nobody really wants them in government. Um, so they can't really help govern, but it makes it really hard to put together a coalition, right? And so, right. Um, so there you have a weird situation where the two major parties, basically their version of the Republicans and Democrats, um, the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats, mm-hmm. have come together in what they call a grand coalition, mm-hmm. which the Social Democrats super did not want to do. They've done it twice with, with Merkel. They think it hurts them. But basically that was the only option, it was either do elections again or do another grand coalition because that was the only way they could put together a government. And so mm. finally, you know, they got a deal that they could live with, and they, they're doing that. And that's when you a weird they one. a deal they could live with, what kind of horse trading happens to um, make that work? They get certain cabinet positions and, okay. you know, certain policy concessions um, and say, you know, the, we're going to be allowed to at least do these things that we care about. Um, so it's, it's – So an American perspective would be like if Donald Trump was president, but John Kerry got to be Secretary of State. Yeah, John Kerry got to be Secretary of State, and maybe you put in, you know, a Democrat at Housing and Urban Development and a mm-hmm. Democrat at – commerce, I don't know, right? I mean, like, those kind of positions, right? Sure. So you get a certain number of the positions um, in in the government, right? So then the German example, they, they're putting together a coalition, too, much like the Italians, but in their case, I mean, this is much more likely to be stable, right? Merkel will probably be able to govern, and she'll probably get most things through her parliament. She can't do anything wild and crazy, um, because she's still, you know, they could bring her down, but um, but at least you have a little bit more stability, right? So I, I say all this to say, I mean, like, Trump's situation is not really like any of those three, right? Congress has independent power in the way they don't have it over Putin. But at the same time, his fate, unless they decide to impeach him, which we've you know never impeached or removed a president, um, his fate, fate is independent of the Congress, right? They can't, you know, they even if his party gets beaten in 2018 badly, right? I mean, he's still president and he's still likely to continue to be president. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it, it's, there's a real question about how will they check him? Will they be willing to check him? Um, to what degree would they be willing to check him? I mean, the main weapon you have is impeachment, and again, that's just such an extreme weapon um, that in 230 years of American history, we've impeached the president twice. That means impeachment by the House, and both times the Senate has not convicted that person. Right. Um, Nixon probably would have been impeached and removed, but he resigned before the House voted. Right. Um, and that's the one case where we, we might have gone down that path. We probably would have gone down that path. But yeah, I mean, he, I mean uh, leaders of his own party had came told to him, him and basically and said, said, you're done. This is what's happening. Yeah, you need to go. Because he also didn't want to lose his pension. <laughs> So um, Andy McCabe redux, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So in this in this regard, we, the early signs that would suggest the Republican-led uh, Congress might be willing to check the president in formal constitutional ways right. are really dim. Dim, yeah. So if right. you look at the con- members of Congress who have even, so, like you, so there's a litmus test, yeah. have supported Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. The only Republicans, there have been some vocal Republicans supporting him, but all of them are part of the um, Not Running Again caucus. Right. So it's right. been a John McCain who is not running again because of his health issues. Right. It is Jeff Flake, who is not mm-hmm. running again because he would probably lose. Yep. So both Arizona senators. And um, uh, recently, oh, uh, Trey Gowdy. Uh, Trey mm-hmm. Gowdy, who yep. um, is a very conservative uh, member, of co- member of Congress mm-hmm. and who was very um, – supportive of investigations into Hillary Clinton to right. the Secretary of State over the Benghazi affair, but he also is not running again. And yep. he recently came out in yep. so, a strong support of Robert Mueller. These gentlemen have suggested, and, and Lindsey Graham also. Lindsey Graham, who might run again. Who might so. run again, but who has often, who has also been a, a, a vocal critic of, of the Trump administration for a period of time right. now. Lindsey, but it, Lindsey was um, author of one of my favorite quotes during the 2016 campaign. When it came down to Trump and Ted Cruz, uh, as the two options for Republican nomination, Lindsey Graham said it's like the choice between being shot and being poisoned, which one I endorse, because he disliked them both so much. Correct. He ended up deciding that he was going to go with Ted Cruz. Um, was, that, was that the shooting or the I poisoning? wasn't never quite clear on whether that was the shooting or the poison, but he did, he did then follow that up by endorsing Ted Cruz, which of course okay. didn't work out. Uh, so. But importantly, uh, Mitch McConnell, the yep. uh, Senate Majority Leader, has been utterly silent on this issue. Yes. Uh, Paul Ryan... Uh, is, uh, the uh, Speaker of the House has issued a what I, what I would describe as a very modest statement yes. um, supporting the the process initiated by the yeah. Mueller investigation yes. uh, and saying he's been told that they are not firing him. I think he said he had gotten correct. reassurances to that effect. Correct. So, for what so worth. all that to say, the level of in, a level of support for, from the leadership of the Republican Party right. in Congress is is quite unflagging of the president. Yeah. Um, and that's in in light of a number of boundary crossing yeah. uh, activities by Donald Trump as president. Um, mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. this is not partisan to suggest that what Andy said at the beginning uh, of this podcast, the Donald Trump presidency is inordinately aberrant mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. its decorum, right. its behaviors. Uh, in the level of societal conflict that Donald right. Trump is inciting, right. and his his supporters love it, his his uh, his critics hate it, right. and it's 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 divisive. Mm-hmm. And all through that, um, his congressional support has has remained intact. And, yeah. and in truth, most Republican voters yeah. have remained relatively supportive of Donald Trump. And I think that's the key point, right? I mean, like I was just talking to my um, American government class about Congress this last week, uh, or this week, and we're still in the middle of that discussion. We'll be continuing tomorrow. But we were talking about what's the main goal of, of members of Congress, and I think their main goal is getting reelected, right? Yeah. And and as long as they perceive that the voters still support Donald Trump, then they have a real incentive to do that, right? Even though they, especially if they perceive that a Donald Trump visit to their campaign yeah. in their district will yield them votes, right? Exactly. And, as, and if the core of the party, and you have to win the core of the party to win your re-election campaigns, right? If they are still supporting Donald Trump, right, then I think um, the Congress will still do it. So I mean, what I look for is, you know, with if 
if the v- polling on Donald Trump goes down, let's say his disapproval, and it's, his disapproval ratings are relatively high for a president at this point, is is right. presidency. And really quite rating high. roughly between 40, 41 percent. Yeah. Somewhere in that range. So approval is right at 40, 41. Negatives are more like 50 something. Right. Yep. But, um, you know, he as long as he's keeping that base. Right. Um, then I think they're going to have a hard time abandoning him. Yep. If he were to drop 10 or 15 points. Right. Then it gets much more interesting. Right. Yep. Because now you're looking and saying there's no way we win. Right. By just turning out that base, right, of 30 percent. I mean, it's just that those are not numbers you can win with. Right. We, we, um, and then you, you say, well, maybe we need to stand up and oppose this president. So I think that's I mean, the polling numbers to me are really key. At some point, there's a tipping point if this polling were to drop. But so far, it hasn't. It's remained pretty stable between like you know high 30s to low 40s. Um, which is not that much below what he got elected with, which is what forty six point two percent. So, if uh, in fourteen months into his presidency now, um, is there some reasonable scenario you can imagine that would cause Donald Trump's approval rating to drop ten to fifteen points? Yeah, the economy. I mean, if the economy okay. tanks, I think that's where you know if if things don't work right. Right now, there's a perception that things are going really well and the numbers have been climbing. They've been doing, we've been doing quite well, right? One of the longest recovery's in um, modern American history. Yeah. And of course that started, I mean, under the previous president, obviously, but, but Trump's claiming credit for it. And Americans do usually give credit to the president who happens to be sitting in the white house at the moment. And that's, you know, been true down through our time. So, you know, I think that's, um, you know, as long as that continues, then Trump probably keeps his base. What's striking is, I mean, like his approval ratings are really low, for a president in the middle of this kind of economic growth. I mean, 40, 41% is really low. But, you know, he'll probably keep those people as long as the economy is doing well. But if it stops doing well, then people might start saying, wow, I don't really like this behavior, and now the economy is tanking, and maybe we should think about somebody else. And that's where I think it gets it gets interesting. So the takeaway for Trump is he better hope the economy keeps thriving. If they do, he probably holds his base. I think you're right. I think even if down tr- there, there was video evidence of Donald Trump engaging in mm, a sexually indiscreet encounter sure. in Moscow. Yeah. got the Christopher Steele memo here. Sure. Um, or even if there was video evidence of him taking a large bag of money from someone affiliated with Vladimir Putin <laughs> yeah. um, like with, with a dollar right. sign on it right. who was wearing right. like a little right. half mask. I mean, right. like the whole thing. <laughs> even if all that was true, I, yeah. I just can't imagine his, his, his approval ratings within his base dropping no. by, by a third. Um, no. No. But I think you're right. If the economy tanks or some kind of structural event happens yep. uh, that indicts not just him but right. the his, his the his White House, yeah, I, I I actually do think that's that's the yep. only way you get to this get to the, get to, get to those impeachment level numbers. Right. Um, exactly. So, and I mean the, the other thing that could of course you know shift all this is the elections that are coming up in 2018, and we'll be talking more about that. On here, right? I mean, if if the Democrats are do win big, right, then you know they might they might see enough evidence from the Mueller investigation or whoever succeeds Mueller in this investigation if he gets fired, um, and you know they might say we're going to initiate this. And at that point, if the Republicans have gotten soundly repudiated at the polls, they might have the incentive to do that, right? They might say, you know, okay, there's some real self interest for us in standing up um, on principle here and saying we're not going to just be Trump lackeys, right? Um, because although, Trump's not going to be around forever. Although, if the Democrats take control of one of the, member, one of the houses, that might incentivize the Republicans in both houses to kind of lean back and say, okay, let's see if the Democrats will be the check yep. on, the, on, the, on the president and we can just sort of sit back and hope that right. we can retake the, right. pres- retake the House or the Senate in the, right. in the, in the, in the next election. Yep. 
they might try to do that too. So. Uh, we should mention, in terms of just a little bit of po- well, actually, before I get to before I get to that, um, let me ask this. Th- this is where we're missing Doctor Crumb, who, by the way, we have not uh, we have not fired from this show. Uh, <laughs> Mitch is at a, Mitch is traveling. We tweeted um, at him, and he's gone. We, we did, yeah. <laughs> We're replacing it with Mike Pompeo too. <laughs> That's um, right. No, he can do every job well. <laughs> so I mean, he's he's perfectly up to ask this. So if we want to punt on this question until next time, we can do that. But this system, where functionally the Congress is at the the members of Congress who are of the same party of the president are kind of at the mercy of the president's leadership. Yep. This certainly isn't what the founding fathers intended. No. This isn't how the Constitution was created. No. This is something that has emerged extra-constitutionally in the modern era. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think, you know, one of the one of the big gaps in the way the Founding Fathers thought about things, right, when they wrote the Constitution is they just didn't, for whatever reason, envision the emergence of parties. And, it, you know, in retrospect, it's really hard to see why, um, but they just didn't really think in those terms. Like, they didn't think about, you know, the president being chosen through the Electoral College, and that would obviously be sort of organized by parties, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, or that the Congress would end up being organized by parties. And so I think they thought of it much more as people thinking independently um, as leaders about what's best for the country. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not sure that they thought, you know, impeachment was going to be such a high bar either, right? I think they probably would have said, you know, yeah, sometimes you're going to have to impeach the president um, if he steps over the line. Um, and, again, we've made that a really, really high bar in this country. It's not like a parliamentary government where you just, you know, the person's not working out, so you remove them and, you know, move on to the next person, right? Right. Um, impeachment means basically, like, you've done something really, really Break bad. this glass. Um, yeah. Sound this fire alarm. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I don't think they envisioned this at all, but here we are. Hmm. So, if that's the... If that's the case, I'm uh, one of the books I'm having my introductory students read mm. this semester is Richard Haas's book. Richard Haas is a Republican, um, not a never Trumper, but a probably a almost never Trumper. Um, <laughs> almost he, certainly never Trumper. Almost certainly never Trumper. Um, he uh, he worked with John McCain in his 2008 presidential run. Ah, uh, okay. But um, Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He has a 2016 book out called World in Disarray. Mm-hmm. And in that book, one of the thing, one of the sections deals with the influences of American domestic politics and America's capacity for foreign policy. Right. And one of his indictments is that America needs to become more democratic and less parliamentary in its political mm. systems. And that's one way I think I can conceptualize what's happening here is that mm. functionally the Republicans currently, and perhaps the Democrats back in 2008, 9, 10, act as a parliamentary system with Donald yeah. Trump or Barack Obama at that point being the leader of the party. Right. And the party being unwilling to abandon the leadership's uh, agenda. Right. Whereas in a, in a democratic system, you might have party organization, but the parties are more internally divided and less yep. willing to uh, kowtow to the to the will of the party leadership of the presidency yep. for, for certain. So. Yeah, except that I think that's that's right in one sense. But then we're a bad parliamentary system, right? Because exactly uh, because a good parliamentary system, then you do what the leader wants, and in fact. Um, our our congresses have not really been that willing to do it, um, and they haven't gotten that much done, right? I mean, like you think about Barack Obama's first two years as president; he has a supermajority in there. 
he gets the bill through about um, you know the well the Affordable Care Act later, but then first the the you know economy fixing you know huge bill yeah, right the tarp um, the tarp and um, and and he gets the Affordable Care Act through, but that's about it. And then the Congress gets taken over right mm-hmm. by the other party, or at least the House does. And, um, you know, he's still president, right? Which, of course, in a parliamentary system, he would be gone, right? Because right. you now have another party controlling. Um, and now, of course, we have a situation where the Republicans control both houses and the presidency, and yet they've been very ineffective at getting things done. They've right. only gotten essentially the tax bill through of you know, in terms of major legislation. So, yeah, it's kind of like a bad parliamentary system. It's in some ways taking the worst of parliamentary systems and the worst of presidentials and combining them i mean the good news is it it, you know it helps keep us from tyranny which was probably the founder's main goal and so in that sense it's still working Mm -hmm. but it's leading to extremely inefficient governance so yeah (laughs) well one thing we probably should talk about um in a future podcast is tyranny um i was surprised to see and i'm not prepped to talk about it today uh, andy but uh in a recent poll of americans um support for democracy as a principle yeah, is lower than it has ever been. Wow. Um, no, that's not to say that it's it's a minority. It's still sure. a majority of Americans sure. support a democratic system of government, but uh, a growing number of people, and we should probably break down who exactly, mm-hmm. but a growing number of people in the United States would be willing to give up democracy in favor of strong, competent leadership. Mm-hmm. And that's striking to me. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think political scientists can speak into. And maybe at that point we can um, reclaim our erstwhile political philosopher. Yes, uh, yes. Dr. Crumb, please come back. Please come back. Yes, yes. Uh, and we can um, maybe uh, work through what, what that might mean. I think that would be a good topic for us to consider soon because I think, yeah, Mitch, we want Mitch here for that one because um, his background in political theory and American both are invaluable. And I, I think there's some interesting perspectives too from comparative politics. I mean, just because. You know, this is we're not the only country to run into this, right? When your government doesn't work, um, you want it to work. And what are you willing to sacrifice to make it work? And I think, you know, as Americans, we're increasingly running into that problem and saying our government's not working very well. Um, what do we do about that? Can you revitalize the democratic institutions or is are they, in fact, the problem? So, right. Yeah. So we should talk about that. Another podcast. Stay tuned, folks. All right. Uh, Andy, anything that people should read or follow to keep up with some of the things we talked about today? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping, obviously, tabs on the news. I love Real, Real Clear Politics is a good place to sort of aggregate the news. Um, there's also, just from a perspective as a Christian, Mitch actually recommended this to me, so we'll um, pass on his recommendation. There was an article by Michael Gerson in The Atlantic talking about mm-hmm. evangelical support for um, Donald Trump and just sort of breaking down... You know, what are, what's going on with that? What are some of the problems with this move? Um, I thought that was really Gerson interesting. Gerson is a former speechwriter so, for George W. Yeah. Bush, and himself is an evangelical Christian. Yeah. So he's an evangelical, he's a conservative, and he's also very concerned about sort of the, the ways that evangelicals have been largely uncritically supportive of Donald Trump. And so as we continue to think about sort of the, you know, what we've been calling the aberrant behavior and the aberrant sort of administration of Trump, uh, I think Gerson's article is really interesting as a read, so yep. recommend that. It's not a long read. It's an easy read, and you can find it free online. Michael Gerson um, wrote this in The Atlantic, and it just came out a few weeks ago. Okay. So. Um, in terms of dealing with the Mueller investigation, the legal ins and outs of that, I recommend um, a blog and podcast, both mm-hmm. under the same umbrella, called the Lawfare Podcast. Okay. Uh, that's run by Ben Wittes, uh, who's mm-hmm. a journalist. Uh, and Wittes recently has written about uh, the question, are we in a constitutional crisis? And mm-hmm. Wittes' answer yeah. is uh, not yet, but he, def- he coins <laughs> the term constitutional rot. 
So the, <laughs> yeah. the, the house is not on fire, but there's some termites in the floorboards that are, uh, if left unchecked, will ultimately undermine undermine the structure of the of the house. And so um, take, a, take a look at that. I think the writing's quite clear and cogent, uh, mm-hmm. and um, he walks through the legal ins and outs of the whole investigation, right. I think, quite well. So do check that out. I'll echo what Andy had to say about the, uh, the Gerson piece. I think that's quite good, too. Mm-hmm. As always, please keep listening to Election Shock Therapy as well. Uh, we'll be back in your feed uh, pretty soon with another podcast uh, talking, um, hopefully a three uh, three person podcast talking about the um, uh, the future of American democracy and and, uh, and other and, minor matters, and just you know other <laughs> other things as they pop up. So, on behalf of my uh, friend Andy here and Sam, who of course is off at his meeting, and Mitch, who is somewhere in the skies headed towards Ohio, um, (laughs) this is Chris Moore saying thanks for listening. As always, you can email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Go Royals.